So now that we know that there's a prohibition to go to a secular court, the next question becomes, are there ever exceptions to the rule? Are there ever departures from the general rule, which is, you have to go to a Beisden? Are there ever scenarios where the halacha would say, no, 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 it's better for you not to go to a Beisden, and you can, of course, go ahead with the case in a secular court. This is a very important question, because as we know, there are many situations that come up where we see that there are Jews who find themselves in court. So how can that be? And why is it that we do that? So the Rush writes that if you have, a, he proves it from a Gemara Masechus Babakama, the Rush writes that if you have a situation where you have a claim against another person and that other person, that other individual is refusing to show up, so the Beisden will send a letter to your house and say, we would like you to come to court on X date or let us know another time when you're available. Now, you have every right to say, I'm sorry, I had a trip planned six months ago. I'm not available to come then. I would like to reschedule for three months from now. That's okay. You're allowed to. But you have to respond. Says the Rush, if you're dealing with someone who is a Misarev Lavo Imoladin, I have the Beisden reach out to you. They reached out to you. You don't show up and you don't answer. You don't respond. I have the Beisden reach out to you again. Says the Rush, what am I supposed to do? So I have to lose my money just because you don't want to listen to the Beisden? That's not fair. So the Rush says, if you have a situation like that, you would be allowed to go to secular court. Now, how exactly do, do we do that? The Rambam outlines exactly how it goes. Says the Rambam, if you're dealing with a very tough, inflexible person who's resistant to come to Beisden, even though they've invited him multiple times to come and have his day in court, then in such a case, says the Rambam, the Beisden will then give you permission to go take it to the authorities. Why will you gain by going to the authorities? Because why will you be better off? You're still dealing with the same inflexible person. What's the answer? Yeah? They can use force. We don't have a police force that can go arrest someone for not showing up to Beisden. The secular government does. So if I've tried in a Beisden... And I'm not getting anywhere because the person is simply ignoring all of the hasmanas, it's called, all of the invitations to come and have their day in court. So what is left for me to do? The basin will say, go to secular court and let them deal with it. Secular court will send the person a summons and they'll say, look, you're due to show up in court. If you don't show up in court when you're supposed to be there, what happens? You get arrested or you get a fine, whatever it is. They have a way of ensuring that someone's going to come. They have some kind of mechanism that is there. And therefore, says the Rambam, that is the way that we get around this issue. We don't expect that people are just going to lose their money because the other side is not willing to be flexible, is not willing to come along and have this listened to by a judge, by an unbiased party. And therefore, we assume that that would be case number one, where you would not have an obligation to go to Basin, and we would tell you that you are certainly encouraged to go to a secular court. The Shulchan Aruch quotes this, and he says that when you have a very difficult person, that is something that we should definitely encourage someone to go to a secular court. However, the Shulchan Aruch says, not only do we encourage you to go to secular court, but we say that the other side who's refusing to come to Beisden gets put in Cherem, as we said before. You get put in Cherem. What do you mean? We have a legal system. We have judges that run a Beisden and you're choosing to ignore them. That means you don't respect our religion. It means you don't respect our values. If you respected it, you would show up. Now, you may say, I don't trust this basin. You have a right to say that. Yes, I'm happy to show up to a basin, but I don't want it to be this one. I don't, I don't believe that these people on the basin are impartial people. I don't believe that they're going to be objective. And you have a right as the nitva, as the one who's, who's being claimed against, you have a right to respond, I want to go to a different basin. 
I want to go to these people who I think are much more objective, much more trustworthy, much more uh, understanding of the situation. They know business better. They understand the scenario that we're in, whatever it may be. You have a right to say that, but you don't have a right to just ignore and say, you know what? I'm just not going to respond at all. So that is what the Shulchan Aruch says. Um, that is what the Shulchan Aruch says. Uh, the general minute, the, the Beis Yosef writes that the general custom is that we give someone three warnings. A Beisdin will send them a letter three different times. And if after three times they don't respond, then we will give what we refer to as a heter arkos, which means we will tell the person, go ahead and bring it to the secular authorities and let them be the ones to take care of this issue. The second place where we have a very clear distinction of when a person would be allowed to go out of the Beisdin system and instead he's allowed to go and bring it up in secular court, would be if I have a Din Torah, if I have a monetary issue with a non-Jew. When I have two Jews, the two Jews belong in Basin. When I have a Jew and a non-Jew, why should I assume that the non-Jew is going to be interested in coming to Basin? He doesn't know anything about our system. He doesn't trust the system. So why should I have an obligation to go to Basin when I know that I should really go to a secular court, which he respects? And therefore, the Tashbeitz writes, and many Achronim write the same thing, that when you have a non-Jew who is the other side of the issue, we would generally assume that you have a right to go to a secular court instead of going to a basin. Okay, so there are a number, as we mentioned, a number of specific potential scenarios that come up where we would make a special dispensation and allow the person to circumvent the basin system and instead to go to the secular courts. Now I want to segue into a very unfortunate reality that we've all heard of, but it's something that, for some reason, in some communities, still seems to be a little bit unclear. What happens when you have a sexual predator? What happens when you have a sexual predator? So I'm sorry to bring up uncomfortable topics, but it's something that unfortunately happens in every community. And we, in our community, are not immune to it. And we maybe have to be a little bit more clear about our position, about what should happen when you have a sexual predator in the community. Issue number one is, what the Torah refers to as, what the Shulchan Aruch refers to as, Mesira. Mesira generally means you are not allowed to hand someone over to the secular authorities. Says the Shulchan Aruch Nechoshe Mishpat, if you do the prohibition of Mesira, if you hand someone over to the secular authorities, Ein lo chelek la'olam haba. That's a very extreme statement. But Ein lo chelek la'olam haba. Now, the question is, nowadays, perhaps we're dealing with a very different set of circumstances. When the Shulchan Aruch says you're not allowed to hand someone over to the secular authorities, what is he referring to? What is he talking about? He's talking about a community that is not a democracy. He's talking about a country that does not have a fair judicial system. For the most part, you're not going to be judged favorably because there's an inherent bias against the Jews. It's a very corrupt system that you're going to be a part of. And therefore, the Shulchan Aruch says that doing the violation of Mesira, handing someone into the secular authorities, is basically not giving them a fair chance. So that's where the prohibition of Mesira applies. Along comes the Aruch HaShulchan and he writes, I have a hard time imagining that the prohibition of Mesira is going to apply when we're dealing with civilized countries that have a judicial system that is set up properly. What does that mean, there's an issue of Mesira? You're never allowed to go to the authorities? You can't go to the police on anyone? Then how are we going to have a civilization? Everyone's just going to do whatever they want. It's going to be no accountability for anything that I ever may be involved with because what are you going to do to me? I can threaten you and say Nasira, which by the way, happens all the time in our community. It happens all the time. We have people who do things wrong. 
And then when they get caught, they say, it's Mesira, you're not allowed to hand me in. What do you mean I'm not allowed to hand you in? What am I supposed to do? So we should allow our community to be taken advantage of, to be abused, to be stolen from, to be involved in Ponzi schemes, to have all kinds of crazy things going on. And we should just say, yeah, Mesira, sorry, we don't hand anyone in. So the Aruch HaShulchan argues that he thinks nowadays it would be very different. Aruch HaShulchan lived in the early 1900s. He passed away. And he writes that he doesn't think that this is what the Shulchan Aruch is describing. He thinks that we live in a very different time. And let me read you his words. This is in Chosha Mishpat. We know that in some communities, uncivilized, barbaric countries, we know nobody was able to live freely. Anybody here from South Africa, from Johannesburg? You ever visited there? Everybody lives with gates around their houses. Why do you live with a gate around your house? Because people can break in. But what do you mean call the police? The answer is the police are also corrupt. The police are also corrupt. So in these kinds of countries, or in certain kinds of, I don't mean them in particular, but in many kinds of communities like that, the judicial system is outrageous. And there is no way to make sure that a person is going to have a fair trial or that the police are going to arrest them and actually do something in a civilized way. In that situation, says the Yerach HaShulchan, that's what we mean when we say that um, that there's an issue of Nasira. However, he says, now, he said, the European countries should be mentioned for good. This was before the war. They came up with the concept of a democracy and they run a country that is civilized and they have a police force that is able to enforce the law. So he says, as far as I see it, I don't see why this whole concept of a Moser should even be in the conversation anymore. It's not relevant. Misira means to hand someone over when I know that in doing so, they're going to be treated unfairly. They're going to be treated in a way that is maybe dangerous or detrimental to their health or to their life. That's called Misira. But now, he says, the police take claims all the time and they judge fairly. We, we, I don't know. If you're from a community that say defund the police, maybe you feel otherwise. But as far as I understand it, I trust the police. I do trust the police. So if that's the case, says the Aruch HaShulchan, this whole issue of Mesira is certainly not what it used to be. And of course, the Gemara talks about a Moser and the Shulchan Aruch does describe it, but he says those circumstances are not similar to what we face today. Beyond that, let's say we were dealing with the issue of Mesira. Let's say you believe that the police here are really not to be trusted and you don't have any belief in the whole judicial system that we have and you believe that when someone gets put on trial it's already a biased trial and the judge already decided beforehand what's appropriate to do for them and what's not and they're not willing to listen to the case. Let's say, let's just say that. I, um, I always wonder when you have the whole system of jury duty here, right? So you ever look at like who ends up being chosen? It can be people that have no understanding of of anything that the case is being brought in front of them. It's like an interesting system that we have. I remember my father, when I was much younger, every time he got jury duty, like everyone's trying to get out of it. My father's like, no, civic duty. He always went. I'm like, daddy, you're like a Rosh Hashiva. You're busy, you're running around, you're flying, you're speaking. No, supposed to go to jury duty, he always went. And of course, he always got stuck on a case. Always, always happened. Why did he get stuck on a case and we never get stuck on cases? What's the answer? Because when they ask most people, I would say like us, I assume we're probably the same in this regard. Uh, do you have a natural bias against this kind of case when somebody tripped 
in the parking lot of a supermarket, do you have any reason that you'll be biased on the case? Yeah, of course. I've tripped a hundred times in the parking lot of a supermarket. It's a very traumatic event for me. Okay, you're disqualified. You can go home. Right? That's what all of us say, I think. No? We come up with reasons why we should be disqualified. If you're my father, so they ask you, do you have a bias against uh, African-American? No, I love the African-Americans. Really, um, you have any bias against the Spanish community? No, I live in Washington Heights. I, you know, I, I walk home with these people every day. So he stands there and says he has no bias and he has no problem and he's very objective and he's happy to be on the case and he wants to do his civic duty and he gets stuck on the case. So that's what happens. It's the same personality trait that when they get to the security counter in Alal, they ask you, do you have anything for anyone? And all of us say no. And he's like, yeah, of course I do. So they're like, really? You're taking stuff for people? What do you have? He's like, actually, I'm going to Eretzisho for a few days. I didn't take anything for myself. My wife got all these packages from everybody. So he always gets stopped. Okay, there's a price you pay for being honest. All right. So anyway, so let's say, how did we get there? So, oh, so I remember my father told me once that he was uh, there by the jury duty and they were going through all the different potential jurors trying to understand. And um, he was chosen for the jury. So the lawyer stands up, the, the lawyer stands up to the prosecutor and he says, I'm sorry, I'd like to disqualify this rabbi. So... The judge says, why do you want to disqualify him? He says, because my client is a Muslim and I think he has an inherent bias against the Muslim. So they kick my father out. My father said he was so upset. You believe that I'm not honest? He was really upset. You called me out, you threw me out of the room because you believe that I have an inherent bias against the Muslim? Why would you think that? I'm an honest, law-abiding citizen, and so is he. Why should you assume that I have a problem with somebody who's not a part of my religion? Whatever, he was very offended by that. All right. Um, I would have just danced out of the room and said, this is great. I'm free. But he, you know, he sees things differently. So let's say you live in a community where they don't have this structure that we believe we have today. And you believe that the judicial system is really terrible. If that's your belief, then the Isra Masira probably should apply. However, the Shulchan Aruch says that there are cases, there are situations where we would say, even though I know by turning this person in they may not have a fair trial, even though I know they may be treated unfairly, maybe they'll get 50 years in prison instead of getting five years in prison, let's say, right? Even if I know that, there are certain scenarios where I'm allowed to turn someone in irrespective of that. What would be a case of that? Shulchan Aruch says somebody who is a terrible mazik lerabit, somebody who is a menace to society, somebody who destroys the community, is allowed to be turned in because we have no other way of taking care of the problem. And they're just going to continue to destroy lives. So, you have a sexual predator. Would you put that under the category of a menace to society? Yes. Yes, we're very clear about this. And the research has shown that these are usually repeat offenders. This doesn't happen in a vacuum. It's usually not the first time when they're, when they're caught. And they are a public danger, and they are a hazard, and they are a major threat, and they are a menace to our society. And as a result of that, it's very possible that we would say that the whole issue of Mesira does not apply, even if you believe we're dealing with a court system that would not treat them fairly. But still, we have no other way to take care of a menace to society. Now, the question is, how do you define a menace to society? I think a sexual predator is very simple. What about when you have somebody who's a fraud? a fraudster, somebody who's doing Ponzi schemes. So you would say, okay, that's also, it's also a, a problem for the society, but how far do you take it? So there are many things that could be very subjective here. 
I think this person is very dangerous and can ruin the lives of many. And you think, eh, not so bad. We'll get it under control. We'll make sure people know about it. It's not so simple to draw the line there. And that's why it's important for us to be aware of the fact that when dealing with these kinds of things, there's a tshuva in the Sefer Zakan Arun. Zakan Arun was written by Rabbi Aaron Walken in Europe. And he writes about a story that there was a, um, a shochet in the town in Europe who people went around saying that they thought he was acting inappropriately with women in the town, whatever they claimed that he was doing, and they wanted him to be fired as the shochet. Now, I would say, don't just fire him as the shochet, you should probably look into the issues also. But okay, they brought the shayla to the rabbi and they asked him, what do we do? This guy cannot be the shochet. The shochet back then was considered to be a very prestigious job. So the shochet, people respected the shochet. So you can't have a shochet who's on the side when people aren't looking, he's doing all these inappropriate things. So therefore, they came to him and they asked him what to do. And he writes that he feels it's his responsibility as a rabbi in the community to make sure that bad things aren't going on. But he says, I tremble with fear when I'm dealing with somebody's life. You need to realize when you put forth a claim like this against the person, you can very likely destroy them forever. So while on the one hand, we do need to make sure that our community is safe and we do need to make sure that our community is protected and we do need to make sure that the people who are in positions of authority, the shochet or wherever it may be, is going to be an upstanding citizen, a great person. But he says it has to be done with great sensitivity and we have to do it with the right channels. We have to make sure that we do it in a responsible way. And he says, he uses a play on the words. He says, we know the Shulchan Aruch says that if you have a shochet whose hands are shaky, he cannot serve as a shochet. Why? Because he's not going to be able to do his job efficiently. So he says, now that I'm being asked to shech the shochet with my hands, you think I'm not, my hands aren't going to be shaking when I'm asked to do that? It's a, it's a very creative way to say it. But he says, you have to realize that when you put forth a claim against another person, you can very easily destroy that person and their family, their children, their spouse, forever. So you have to do it very carefully. Now the Natsiv, who was one of the great gedolim in Europe, in pre-war uh, Europe, makes an extremely decisive comment where he writes on the Pasuk and Sefer Vayikra, Lo rachil which means you're not allowed to share rechilas. Rechilas means you're not allowed to go around peddling negative information about other people. So it says, Lo rachil what is the next phrase in the Pasuk? One Pasuk has two fragments. First part is, Lo Second part is, anyone know? You knew the last one. So what's the connection? Says the Nitziv, I'm going to read you his words. Even though the Torah says, you're not allowed to slander, you cannot defame, you're not allowed to libel another person. The Torah also says, The Torah also says, you're not allowed to stand by idly and witness somebody whose life is about to be destroyed. And therefore says the Nitziv, you may want to hold yourself back from sharing this information with the authorities because you're going to say, I can't destroy someone's life. Says the Nitziv, while that is a very weighty consideration that you need to think about very carefully, don't forget the second half of the passage, that if you don't share the information when it's appropriate to do so, and if you don't report the abuse as it should be reported, then you're in violation of because somebody else is going to be the next victim and you have blood on your hands because you didn't say anything. Says the Natsiv, don't overblow, don't overemphasize one or the other. You have to realize the severity of both sides of this equation. is very severe and is also very severe, but one over the other cannot allow you to make the improper choice or the improper decision. And therefore he says, 
it is very, very important that we make sure that we do whatever we can to, um, to put this forth when we feel that there is a concern. Now, you're going to say, what right do I have to humiliate, to shame, to embarrass another person when I don't know 100% that this is the issue, when I just think that this is the problem, and now I want the prosecutors to look into it? What right do I have? Isn't it shaming someone, humiliating somebody? How can I do that? The answer to that is, you look in Parsha's uh, Sota, and Sefer Bamidbar and Parsha's Naso, the Torah talks about the story of the Sota. The Sota means that her husband has a suspicion that she's doing inappropriate things in the context of their marriage. And the Torah says that you bring her to the Beis HaMikdash and she is completely humiliated, even though the husband is not 100% sure. So what right does he have to do that? The Torah says there are times when you have a right to do that, to get to the bottom line, to get to the truth. Now, the Torah does say that if the woman is innocent, she deserves everything in the world coming to her because her husband did something that was so humiliating to her. Maybe he was trying to retaliate for something, whatever it may have been, but he did something that was terrible to her, and therefore she gets paid back, whatever, whatever the Gemara says, she gets a, a very large compensation in many different ways for what was done to her. But to say that I don't want to bring this to the authorities who are experts in this field, because I'm afraid that I'm going to humiliate someone, again, it has to be done with sensitivity and with caring, and thinking about how to do it properly and knowing that you're doing the right thing and going to the right people. But at the same time, to say that I'm not going to bring it because I'm afraid to embarrass someone, that the Torah says is not an appropriate response. Now, the Chafetz Chaim, will close with this, the Chafetz Chaim who focuses so much on the laws of Lashon Hara, Chafetz Chaim tells us that whenever you do something, the To'elas, whenever I share negative information with whoever it may be, I have to keep the following factors in mind. I think he says five or six factors that he says we need to always keep in mind. Even if we think we're doing something good that's going to help the community, we always need to have it with the following framework in our minds. Number one, he says, you have to be talking about something that you have firsthand knowledge of, not something that somebody told you. Maybe you bumped into them in the supermarket, they shared a story, I think, I saw, I maybe. That's not good enough. Says the Chavetz Chaim, you have to have firsthand knowledge to know that this is substantiated and that this is true, to make sure that it is something that is well-established and corroborated, only then do you have a right to move forward with it. Number two, he says, you have to make sure that you don't draw conclusions before it is prosecuted. So you have to bring the case up to the people who are in a position of authority to help figure it out. You have to bring it to the people who are going to help protect the community, but you as an individual should not draw your own conclusions until they come down with their conclusion, which is either the person is guilty or innocent. Until that verdict comes out, you should leave it in your mind as something that you are not 100% sure about. Number three, he says, you should first try the less destructive way to handle it. Now, when you're dealing with a sexual predator, there is no less destructive way to deal with it. You don't go talk to the predator and say, please, I heard you're doing this. I would, I would appreciate if you would stop. Like, please stay away from our children. It's really not good for our community. That's probably not going to work. There is no other way to deal with it other than to absolutely deal with it and eradicate that from our community. So that may not apply to this case. Number four, he says you have to be careful not to exaggerate, not to distort, not to misrepresent the facts as you know them. You cannot inflate the story. You have to say the facts exactly as they happen. Number five, he says that you have to be mechavin litoelis. What is your mindset when you're going to do this? Now, if someone's a victim, I can't blame them for feeling a sense of retaliation. I want to go and share this information because I want to kill this person, because I want revenge against this person who ruined my life. 
But the Chafetz Chaim says we should try to the best of our ability to make sure that even when we have to hand someone over to the authorities and share information that is negative, Chafetz Chaim says we should not do it out of revenge, we shouldn't do it out of a sense of vengeance, but rather it should be letoelis. We should feel that we're doing it because we want to bring justice to the community, we want to bring justice to ourselves, we want to make sure that people are protected and we're doing it for the right reasons. Um... What else does he say? I think he has one or two other conditions, but these are the main ones that he discusses. And when a person has something that they need to address, it is important that they do it in the right way and that they have the proper sensitivities. And as we said, that balance of lo samar al but lo are, of course, the two conflicting values that we always need to think about whenever we have these kinds of very tragic and painful situations. But it's something that, of course, we need to find the balance, just like everything else in Judaism. It's not always so clear-cut. But we need to do it with sensitivity to both sides. We need to do it with sensitivity to the victim and to the perpetrator. You need to try to have rahmanas on everyone. You have to realize, unfortunately, sometimes there are going to be people whose lives are going to be destroyed on both sides or on either side. So there's no winning in these kinds of cases. We have to do the right thing. We have to look with clarity. But we have to do it in a way that is you know, preventing the most amount of harm that we possibly can. Okay, all of this falls under the purview of the first three words of this week's parsha, Eila HaMishpatim Asher Tasim Lifnehem.